when it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Welcome to FT Politics, a podcast on all things British politics from the Financial Times. I'm Sebastian Payne, and in this week's episode, we'll be discussing a better week for the Conservatives and Theresa May, and a not-so-good one for Labour and Jeremy Corbyn. I'm delighted to be joined by George Parker, the FT's political editor, Whitehall editor James Blitz, political commentator Miranda Green, and former Labour advisor Aisha Hazarika. Thank you all for joining. So, Theresa May has survived another week and is actually doing a little better as Prime Minister. She sealed a confidence and supply deal with the Democratic Unionist Party from Northern Ireland, got through her first PMQs and passed a Queen's speech, so she can now get on with governing. But now she has more support from the backbench of her party, how long will it last? So George Parker, Theresa May began this week in a fairly weak position. She didn't have a working majority. She didn't have a Queen's speech passed. And all those things changed by the end of the week. And obviously it's been a pretty bumpy time for the Prime Minister. But she seems to be a little bit stronger now. And MPs and ministers are now talking of her lasting months as opposed to weeks. Yeah, I think the position of the Prime Minister has stabilised a bit during the course of the week. I was speaking to one Tory MP who said that the probability of reaching the age of 100 when you're 99 is is quite high, let's say 95%. And they were making the point that every day she survived, her longevity seemed to improve. And, and so I think you're right. I mean, the DUP deal at the start of the week obviously gave her the Commons majority she needed to pass at the Queen's... Of, at a cost of a billion pounds. Cost of a cool one billion pounds. That sort of that The fact that that drama was brought to an end, I think sort of that at least calmed people's nerves a bit. And the truth is actually that since she's been back at Westminster, she's back in a much more of a natural environment. Her performances at the dispatch box have been far more assured than you might have imagined when you see this nervous, shaky person at the Grenfell Tower site, for example. So I think the fact that she's back at Westminster and has behaved in a fairly competent fashion and she's been up against Jeremy Corbyn, who's back in his not natural habitat, the House of Commons, and been faintly, fairly ineffective. I think all of that has helped to sort of calm the nerves of Tory MPs. And as you say, they're now looking wistfully towards the summer holidays and the, the prospect of going away and putting a wet, wet towel on their heads. So Miranda Green, let's just go back to the beginning of the week, which was quite a long time ago now, but we had that deal with the DUP and this is the Confidence and Supply Agreement, which in exchange for a billion pounds of investment money for Northern Ireland, not for the DUP, for Northern Ireland, very crucially, they will prop up Theresa May's government. What kind of reception did it get and what did you make of the deal? Well... There are certainly people who have been very suspicious about this deal, not just because of its potentially disruptive effect on the Northern Ireland peace process. And of course, we're still in a situation where the devolved government at Stormont has been suspended. And so any feeling that the British government is no longer a neutral, honest broker between the two communities and their representatives in Northern Ireland remains a huge problem. However, I think the fact that this deal was struck in the Commons to provide the votes necessary for it to get May's government legislation through 
will have been seen as a huge relief, actually, to most of her own backbenchers. There were one or two voices yesterday during the debate on the Queen's speech saying they'd have preferred to govern alone than to have this relationship because it is a controversial relationship. Most of them will be thinking that it's contributing to the situation George has described of a feeling of a lot more stability than a couple of weeks ago. And I would completely agree with George. It's very noticeable that May seems stronger than she did a fortnight ago. And and actually, if you remember back to a year ago, the reason she is the Prime Minister and is the leader of the Tory party because she was the last person left standing during that ridiculous leadership contest a year ago. And actually, I think it's helped her a lot in the last two weeks that the kind of Westminster scuttlebutt about who might stand against her has just served to remind people that she was the least worst option a year ago and she probably still is. I mean, the spectre of Andrea Leadsom, for example, turning up on the streets of West Kensington outside the Grand full tower probably showed people that for all her faults may does have some qualities that was a slightly amusing moment this week george when friends of andrea ledson were urging her to run for leader and um, i'm not quite sure who those friends well, were dozens of conservative mps according to her friends <laughs> yeah. i to see those emails uh, indeed <laughs> but if we just look at this deal there were some conservative mps who were not happy about this and that was actually given a public voice in heidi allen who's the mm. mp for south cambridge who stood up in the commons and said that she was i think sickened or disgusted at this deal and felt it shouldn't have been done but mostly MPs seem to have accepted and this was given again voice by David Cameron who tweeted quite soon afterwards this deal was a good thing for stability and gave his seal of approval which I'm sure Theresa May was a little bit relieved (laughs) Yeah so it was interesting that that David Cameron intervention but I think you're right I mean Miranda's outlined some of the problems with the deal there's obviously also the problem of recontaminating the Conservative brand by being in league with such a socially conservative party but I think generally in terms of you know, what they're craving more than anything else at Westminster moment, Conservative MPs, is stability. And the fact that you've got those 10 seats giving you a reasonably comfortable cushion in the House of Commons trumped everything else. And we instantly saw on the problems with that deal, Miranda, with abortion, which Sela Creasy, who is the Labour MP for Walthamstow, she tabled an amendment to the Queen's speech, which would have been to give Irish people free abortion in England if they wanted it. And the government headed this off by pre-announcing they would provide this anyway, because there was some debate about whether an amendment to a Queen's speech would count as a defeat of the Queen's speech. But that just shows how susceptible they're going to be to the whims of MPs and the whims of people on the back benches. Absolutely. And I mean, I'll be amazed if we get to the end of this year and Stella Creasy doesn't get a whole bunch of awards for kind of campaigner of the year and most effective parliamentarian of the year because she Mm. brilliantly spotted an opportunity to harness disquiet about this social conservatism in Northern Ireland, which we should point out is most parties and across the the divide. It's not just the DUP who have antediluvian views on things like women's rights, but she managed to get cross-party agreement and sort of hijack the Queen's speech to make a huge legal change which will give women in Northern Ireland a right to have their abortions paid for by the NHS in the rest of the UK. And we should also emphasise this, we're talking about a situation where women in Northern Ireland weren't able to get abortions even in cases of rape and fatal fetal abnormality. So really it's dragged Northern Ireland into the modern era in a way. I totally agree with what Miranda said about Stella Creasy. It was an amazing bit of parliamentary work but we should also give a bit of credit I think to the Speaker of the House of Commons, John Burko, because it wasn't obvious that he would allow an amendment to the Queen's, Queen's speech on such a you know, technical issue in the great scheme of things. And the fact he did allowed this law change to take place, which I think is um, to his credit. 
Absolutely, and the Queen's speech did go through without much hassle, really, in the end, George, and those crucial numbers, 3-2-3, we're going to be hearing a lot of, I think, over the next couple of years as the Conservative whipping operation, which actually seems to be pretty good, actually. You know, some MPs are um, bemoaned that Gavin Williamson, the Chief Whip, is quite um, brutal in some of his kind of methods and quite aggressive, but it does seem to be working, and they got that through, which, again, was a huge relief for the Prime Minister, as was PMQs this week. Gavin Williamson is a real parliamentary operator. He was David Cameron's parliamentary bag carrier and got to know the party really well. He has a tarantula called Cronus in his office as a symbol of the as a symbol of the brutal methods you've just been alluding to. But I think I agree it's been a it's been a successful whipping operation. And you mentioned Prime Minister's Question Time. You could see actually in Prime Minister's Question Time the Conservative Party coming in behind Theresa May it was again a pretty solid performance by Theresa May. Theresa May expected Jeremy Corbyn at Prime Minister's Question Time to raise the question of the public sector pay cap, which of course was the subject of an amendment to the Queen's speech that Labour have put down, instead of which Jeremy Corbyn used all his questions on the Grenfell Tower fire, which is why we ended up shortly after Prime Minister's Question Time being briefed by the Downing Street press machine of, on the words that the Prime Minister would have used had she been asked about them in the chamber by Jeremy Corbyn on the, the probable lifting of the pay cap later in the year. But Miranda, that turned into a bit of a farce because this briefing came out that hinted there was going to be some kind of change of policy, which lasted for, I think, about three hours, George, before there was then another U-turn, which actually said nothing has changed to uh, <laughs> quote Theresa May's famous words from the election campaign. Well, that's right. This government is getting very good at U-turns. I mean, they've had a lot of practice now. And the row about public sector pay is politically significant, as well as being yet another little sort of scuffle and skirmish and embarrassment because clearly one of the things that came out in the election campaign if we can actually remember everything (laughs) that's happened since then has made us so busy it seems like a long time ago even if it was a few weeks this question of people feeling their finances squeezed became very significant in the election campaign and this question of freezing public sector pay for such a long time has caused the Conservative Party problems so the kerfuffle was about whether they were going to do something later in the year and whether Philip Hammond had control over his own decisions as Chancellor again, essentially. So it just brings us back to this ongoing tension between number 10 and number 11, which does seem to be a running issue for the government, although peace has sort of broken out. Well, sort of. I mean, but the the trouble is that Philip Hammond was humiliated ritually by number 10 over the last um, year to 18 months, and he wants to assert himself. And when he heard the number 10 were essentially briefing out his budget six months in advance, he he hit the roof and ordered a U-turn. But I mean, it goes to the heart of the problem the government has here, apart from Brexit, is the question about how they deal with austerity, because Miranda's right, there was a huge public clamour for an end to the squeeze on living standards and for the government to sort of turn the spending taps on a little bit more. But at the same time, the public finances are in really serious trouble and the economy is starting to go downhill rather than picking up momentum. So Philip Hammond, there's a reason why Philip Hammond didn't want to pre-announce the budget now, is because he doesn't know how things are going to look when they're in the middle of Brexit negotiations and he's delivering his budget in November. He's also got an extra problem that all the stuff in the manifesto that was there to save money has all been kiboshed because of the DUP deal. Yeah. That the change to the pension triple lock, they've gone. The change to the winter fuel allowance, mm. they've gone. The change to free school meals, they've gone. So all those things that would have given Hammond some money to use for say boosting public sector pay are not all there now. That's right then you've got the Northern Ireland bung the one billion to Northern Ireland and there are a load of measures he announced in the spring budget which were never pushed through Parliament in the finance bill because the election came along which again could cause him problems because they've got to get that past the Labour Party plus there's an existing black hole in the budget from the 
national insurance contribution rise he tried to push through in the spring, which again he had to drop. So there are black holes opening up all over the place for him. And of course, raising public sector pay will draw attention all over again to the school's funding crisis, which again became a big Mm. issue in the election campaign and to the squeeze on NHS finances. So it's a kind of circular problem of uncomfortable subjects for the government. We do see, though, that the Conservatives seem to be moving away from austerity, if you want to call that some of a question, all these different terms. But Oliver Letwin, who was one of the chief architects of the government's last plan to scale back public spending, appeared in public and said, well, actually, maybe now is the time to gently raise taxes and bring some extra money because there's certainly no desire to borrow. I can't see that dry Thatcherite Philip Hammond wanting to start to borrow more money, Miranda. And I get this is all a response to the election campaign that the Conservatives have deduced that people felt they just wanted a change and they've got to deliver it or they'll have their lunch eaten by Jeremy Corbyn. Well, that's right. I mean, the prospect of an immediate second election this year does seem to be receding as May is looking slightly stronger. I struggle to say strong and stable. We can't got, got to that point yet. But even so, you know, they're not in a commanding position. And so all of these vulnerabilities that were exposed during the election campaign are very much on their mind. I think it's the case that, you know, austerity, you know, in the last government under the coalition, they talked very hard line on austerity. And then in practice, it was quite slow. The question is, many economists say, whether it was actually enough at the time. And if you start to loosen the taps now, are you setting up big problems in terms of debt and the deficit down the line? We had a piece from Nick McPherson, who's the former permanent secretary at the Treasury, who actually said, don't give up on austerity now. And he was a Mm. firm believer in sound money, as he called it. But that doesn't really seem to be chiming with the public mood at the moment. George Mm. Farnage, looking forward to next week. So the Queen's speech is through. The government is picking up speed. I wouldn't quite go motoring (laughs) along yet. I mean, it's a pace similar to my Morris Minor that broke down (laughs) this week. But we've got the repeal bill coming on Monday, formerly known as the Great Repeal Bill, which is the first big piece of bread legislation and this is where the real battle is going to come for Theresa May because those Conservative Remainers, people like Dominic Grieve, Nicky Morgan who don't like the government's Brexit strategy they were never going to interfere with the Queen's speech because that would be yeah. you know, it would be betrayal as it would be seen but with the repeal bill this is when cross party workings and amendments could start coming thick and fast and things get bumpier. Yeah I agree with that I mean the, the, the amendment to the Queen's speech put down by the pro-Europeans on the Labour side like Chukra Muna that backfired spectacularly and it was a, a big misstep I think by them because it it's um, just humiliated, embarrassed the Labour Party. But you're right, when the repeal bill comes through, there'll be so many opportunities for the pro-Europeans to amend legislation, and not, of course, just the repeal bill, but the, the host of bills coming along behind the repeal Another bill. Another seven to come. Another seven big ones to come. And they will. each one of those will become rallying points for people who want to push the tr- Prime Minister in it towards a softer kind of Brexit. So whether it's about the transition deal, whether it's about staying in the customs union a bit longer, whether it's about staying part of Eurosum, for example, there'll be plenty of opportunities. And that, I think, above all else, is the thing that can corrode the authority of the Prime Minister in the coming months. Every morning, waking up to the Today programme and hearing the presenter saying the government's been defeated on X again, you know, and that ultimately spreads ill discipline and erodes morale very quickly. And it reminds us of nothing so much as the mid-90s when the major government Mm. was struggling along from vote to vote. 
And at that time, you could, as George says, you could feel John Major's authority kind of seeping away from him almost daily. If you get into those kind of parliamentary battles, it's very difficult for a prime minister. But also, I think it's very interesting because actually the Commons is going to be where there's a lot of action for the next few months. You know, the, the, the politics had become so much not about Parliament and totally about what the government of the day was doing. And now, once again, ideas are going to be contested daily in the chamber, which is actually going to be quite interesting to watch. And finally, Miranda, just for one bonus topic, <laughs> the Liberal Democrats. So Ed Davey did announce this week that he's not standing for the leadership. So it is Sir Vince Cable against Sir Vince Cable. Yes, that's right, which probably means that Sir Vince Cable will come <laughs> through at the end of this unnecessarily drawn out leadership election campaign by the end of the summer. I mean, you know, he's an experienced voice on the economy. So I think many supporters of the party will be sort of pleased to see him back in a national role. And I think the idea is that Jo Swinson, the somewhat younger MP who regained her seat in Scotland in the election we've just had, will be sort of brought along as a kind of trainee leader in waiting, possibly even in time for the next general election. We'll see. Labour went into this week in a fairly strong position, still celebrating its surprisingly good performance in the election. But by the end of it, the story had gone back to split over Brexit and the party's policy, whether it supports single market membership primarily or cutting migration. This manifested itself during the Queen's speech, where an amendment backed by 49 Labour MPs didn't go through but incurred the wrath of Jeremy Corbyn. James Blitz, let's just talk about where Labour is on Brexit. I think you could describe that manifest position as constructively ambiguous that they said they want to end free movement of people but they also essentially want to stay in or have the benefits of staying in the single market and we know from Brussels that that is not an option without cutting migration so it's quite hard to see how the party's policy stacks up but it does work at the ballot box for pleasing its metropolitan voters its provincial voters but is it going to have to decide which way to go? The short answer to that question is yes, it is going to have to take a decision. I mean, Labour is quite extraordinarily split between different groups and there's a lot of focus on how the Conservatives are divided between Philip Hammond and David Davis, but the truth is that Labour is equally split. On the one hand, you've got... Jeremy Corbyn and John McDonnell, who are really still very traditional anti-Europeans of the 1970s and 1980s, that is basically don't believe in the European project. Corbyn didn't campaign at all to remain. They are very concerned indeed about the way in which working class Labour supporters moved over to UKIP at the 2015 election. So they're they're really worried about that. But then on the other hand, you've obviously got Chukaramuna, Metropolitan London MPs, much more on the centre ground of the party who are basically saying and came up as you say with this amendment let's stay members of the single market let's stay members of the customs union and then in between you've got the really rather weather-worn figure of Sakir Starmer the Brexit spokesman who's really trying to kind of hold the ring if you like but he's doing so with statements of of uh, which are almost impenetrable at times in terms of where the party is And the trouble is that as long as Labour stays in this very ambiguous, undecided situation, it cannot exploit any of the divisions on the Tory side. That, I think, is the problem for Corbyn. 
Because Aisha Hazarika, if we the fundamental problem is, as James was saying, the leadership at the very top, John McDonnell and Jeremy Corbyn, they're probably Brexiters at half. They campaigned for a main, but what was it Jeremy Corbyn said? 7.5% enthusiasm during the referendum, whereas the vast majority of Labour MPs are very pro-EU and pro-Main and would much rather focus on the single market membership than cutting migration. But the party doesn't seem to be willing to make that decision. See, I'm in the rather unusual position where I actually thought Jeremy Corbyn's Brexit position was quite an honourable one. I think it would have been unrealistic for him to suddenly be like, I love the EU. I think his message was, look, let's stay in the EU to reform it and make it better. Let's make it, you know, more of a sort of I think of that jobs. was David Cameron's message as well. <laughs> but I thought what what would have been nice is to see Jeremy commit some of his campaigning zeal to the EU referendum campaign that he's done for, for, for the general election. I think Labour's position was politically savvy stroke fuzzy enough to have really worked for it at the general election campaign, as you said. My advice to them would be to sort of carry on this slightly fuzzy trajectory. I sort of disagree with James. I would have sort of said they should sort of kind of carry on being slightly fuzzy for a bit longer until the Conservatives show a little more leg in terms of... Because the Conservatives are split exactly in the same way. David Davis and Philip Hammond, you know, embody the two splits in the Conservative Party. I thought Chuka Umuna's amendment was ill-judged and sort of naive at a time, you know, the week when the Queen's speech was very, very difficult for the Conservatives, Stella Creasy had scored a very admirable win on the abortion amendment. I think it would have been quite good to have actually had, you know, the, the parliamentary focus being on the Conservative Party. Right, look, the Labour Party will have to come down. James is right. At some point, they will have to pick a side. Will it be immigration Will it be the single market? It, you have to pick a side at some point. But I don't think they needed to be forced to, to play their hand now. Because this was the point of Tom Watson, the deputy leader of Labour, who came out and said, look, we've just come off this great election campaign that did much better than everyone expected. And the Conservatives are the one who are weak. And instead of exploiting that, instead it's gone back to the story of Labour split. And Jeremy Corbyn acted in a pretty tough way, didn't he, as a result of the people who voted against his whip because the Labour were whipped to abstain on this amendment. I think he had to do that. I think, you know, he is now the leader, um, even though he's rebelled against the whip many, many times. He is sending a signal. He's being quite muscular about his leadership. And why wouldn't we? Look, in a way, he didn't win the election, but he won the right to lead his party with quite a lot of conviction. I think that is the thing that the POP is so split on. I was in the House of Commons on Wednesday night talking to a lot of very ardent pro-Remain uh, Labour MPs who were going to sign Chuka's amendment on the Thursday and I was saying to them, don't you think the timing of this is, is 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 bad in terms of the general optics of where the two parties, I mean, the Conservatives are all over the place. Shouldn't Labour trying to be sort of exp exploiting that? But I think people in the PLP are so angry about the situation. They're so angry about where things are with the leadership. Their anger is somewhat clouding their judgment. I think the interesting thing for Chuka's amendment, I think if he'd maybe waited, I think if he had organise things a bit better let things settle down a bit start seeing where the Conservative plan was taking shape you know say look this is what Labour's alternative is going to be I think he actually would have had a better result on it
James, if you compare the split in Labour to the Conservatives, how different are they? Because I said that both parties have got this issue, but with the Conservatives, one gets the sense that they're actually there's a lot of them. The vast majority just want to get on with Brexit. There is a rump that wants to remain as close to the EU as possible. Whereas in Labour, I wonder if the split's actually quite a lot bigger than that. Yeah, there are what about fifty? There are about forty-nine people back the uh, amendment for Chukarimu, and there's quite a lot of MPs, a lot of peers, people like uh, Andrew Donis, Peter Hayne. So it's quite a wide-ranging group, and the stance they've taken is much, much bolder than any kind of pro-European stance on the Tory side. They want to be members of the single market, members of the customs union. That's really right out on the softest of soft Brexit, basically, with raising lots of questions about immigration. But I want to say one tiny thing, if I may, which I disagree, if I may, I disagree with you, on the timing point. The problem is there isn't a lot of time. This is the time, I'm afraid. You know, we're coming to the stage now, when we come back in the autumn, the negotiations in Brussels move from discussion of the divorce to discussions of the future free trade agreement. The legislation is coming to the Commons. We still don't know how the legislation cascades, but... We are coming to a point rather quickly where decisions have got to be taken on where you are on the single market and the customs union. So I really don't think it's that early. And I don't think it was tactically wrong. I think we've come to the point now where people have got to start saying what they really think. What was tactically wrong was for Jeremy Corbyn to sack these front benchers because they disagreed. That actually, that, 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 that freezes the split once again inside the Labour Party on these issues. It'd be far be- it would have been far better if he just left it. It's not the end of the world. It, it but then, mean, then his authority for all other things is diminished. You cannot have a parliamentary whipping system which you opt in and out of. Otherwise, he should have just said, look, I'm going to give people a free vote on this, which he hasn't done. The okay. other thing I would say, look, time is ticking on, and you are right. We do have to see some clarity. But that actually doesn't need to come from the Labour Party. It actually needs to come from the people yes, who are doing the... Yes, but it will only come from the from Conservatives. The, from the negotiators. Yes, but the point, I think, on Labour is that Labour, if, if Labour retains such an un defined position, it puts no pressure on the cabinet to define itself. If Labour had a much clearer position about customs union membership, it would put a much stronger focus on where the divisions are. Whereas I think they're actually giving... Hammond and Davis a little more time, a little more space to sort this thing out because there's no really effective. But opposition. I think that's what see politically. I think that's exactly what they want to do, James. I think basically they don't want to be leading on. But remember, Corbyn is a reluctant Remainer. John McDonald is probably a Brexiteer, to be honest. They are not going to feel the need to politically go out on a limb and you know put their head above the parapet. They're going to respond to what the Conservatives come up with. And the other thing on the timing. Do not forget, I mean, you're absolutely right about the time people, but the politics for the Labour Party are very, very important. The Labour Party, a lot of people in the Labour Party were quite uncomfortable about Chuka putting down this amendment at this point because a lot of people in the Labour Party, especially outside London, have got a massive problem with their constituents where if you said to them, pick a side, the single market or immigration, they would go for immigration. Yeah, but there may be that. But I, again, I don't quite understand this. This is all very sort of inside Westminster, this approach. The, Corbyn's achievement in the general, the last general election, one we've just had, was to get an enormous number of young people 
Mainly because he gave them tuition, free tuition no, fees. No, it wasn't just free tuition fees. An enormous number of young people, an enormous number of first-time voters clearly came over to Labour because they were angry about May, angry about hard Brexit, angry about the decision, the, the way the Conservatives were taking things. And I just think he's at grave risk, I'm afraid, of losing... That in the same way that May lost the enormous 22-point lead that she had back in April, I think he's at risk, actually, of losing a lot of the momentum he so, built up over the last few weeks. When I was going around the country, aging my stand-up show about politics and also doing a lot of door-knocking, Brexit hardly came up. It hardly came up, even in areas which were very passionately pro-Remain. Most people... I spoke to, their major concerns were they certainly didn't like me. Austerity was the big thing. The NHS and actually the cuts to the school's budget came up a lot. I think the young people you saw chanting Jeremy Corbyn at Glastonbury, they don't really care about the ins and outs of the customs union or the single market, to be honest. What Corbyn stands for is a bigger... Now, it may be fool's gold in many ways to them, but what he stands for is something actually bigger and more kind of hopey and sort of emotional than than just Brexit. So there obviously is a question about what happens next on this, James, because the repeal bill is coming into Parliament next week. It's the first of one of eight pieces of big legislation as part of Brexit. And, you know, Conservative MPs I've spoken to said we were never going to get involved with the Queen's speech because it would be dangerous to do that. But what they might do is work with some Labour MPs with regards to the repeal bill. So there will be some more opportunities there for those 49 Labour MPs and probably more Labour MPs who didn't want to put their head above the parapet to try and nudge the government in a different direction. There might be, although at this stage, and I've looked at it, I don't quite know how that's all going to play out. There's clearly issues about the repeal bill that worry a lot of MPs, and one of them clearly is that it allows an enormous amount... What happens with the repeal bill is it brings the whole acquis of EU legislation, as you know, onto the UK statute book, and then allows a process by which this is amended, things are struck out, often through, however, secondary legislation. Without proper Henry scrutiny, VIII, Henry yeah. So-called Henry VIII powers, proper scrutiny. There's lots of there that people can get their teeth into. There's a lot of issues about regulation. There's a lot of issues about securing workers' rights, which will appeal to Labour very strongly. Whether this, however, is going to provide the kind of seismic moment that might really unsettle the government, I'm not sure. The key problem for Corbyn remains that if he takes a very strong pro-Brexit position, which is what he does, and he then starts to obstruct things like the Great Repeal Bill or other legislation, Mrs May will turn around and say, well, hang on a tick. You want us to leave the EU. This legislation is about making sure that happens. You are being absolutely irresponsible to want to take us out of the EU without having the fundamental legal underpinnings to do so. So he's actually on, I think, a much weaker position. I come back to where I was. Unless they take a very firm view on the customs union, I don't think they're going to do very much to destabilise this government. It is a bit of a balancing act as to that, Aisha, but also when, to clarify, because you said they will have to at some point, whether it's the Great Repeal Bill, one of the other eight bills, or at the next general election, you know, wherever it is, they're going to have to clarify where that is. I would like to come back as well to something you said earlier about the mood of the PLP at the moment. The Parliamentary Labour Party really didn't like 
like Jeremy Corbyn and was one of his biggest headaches up until the election. Yet this week they had their photograph taken in Westminster Hall and they all began <laughs> chanting, oh, Jeremy Corbyn to the tune of the White Stripes Seven Nation Army, which has become Corbyn's official, unofficial anthem. You know, where is that mood? Because as James said, I think there is this sort of bubbling anger about Brexit that could spill over at some point. So I think the PLP, I think there's they're quite split in terms of how to handle the the Corbyn thing. So if you look at Deputy Leader Tom Watson, and you know he was one of Corbyn's harshest critics over the last year or so, he's leading a big run for people saying, look, actually. We did far better. We didn't win, but we did far better than we did. It's good to clarify um, the didn't win didn't thing. Win. But if you, you know, I was with lots of new MPs on Wednesday night. People feel heartened by the fact that we came back with a bigger PLP, new reach into areas of the country, which we need to. Plymouth, Scotland was a, a, a big thing. You know, Ian Watson, um, Ian Murray was the only Scottish Labour MP um, in Scotland for a long time. So there is a view. And also the, the narrative on austerity has changed. And a lot of MPs are very happy about that. They feel that's absolutely why they want to be in the Labour Party. They feel that there's a sort of strong moral political mission for them. The Brexit stuff is interesting. There's a, there's there's the 49 MPs who are absolutely steaming and angry, angry, angry about Brexit, and they will keep pushing it, and, and quite rightly, they feel very passionate about it. I think the rest of the mood of the PLP is either you're a pro-Corbyn person and you're like, get behind him. I think the majority of people are just like, actually, I'm going to keep my head down. I'm not going to publicly criticise Corbyn. I recognise that he had a far better campaign than anybody anticipated. And I think Stella Creasy, interestingly, provides a bit of a blueprint for how MPs will think about using their time in Parliament. Instead of going around sort of openly criticising Corbyn and, and getting themselves into lots of fights, I think people might think, look, pick an issue you really care about, see if you can work, you know, cross-party as well. Backbenchers actually have quite a lot more power now because there is this very fragile majority. So I think that is sort of where the, the mood of the... They, they are... I think the majority of them feel quite cowed by the situation, but they don't want to go around publicly criticising Corbyn. Well, that is understandable, and I, I agree with you that Stella Creasy did get, provide a, a blueprint for a... A very effective guerrilla operation on the House of Commons, an impressive performance. I still come back to the basic question, though. In the end, we're coming to a position where people have got to decide how they want to lead. I think there's a perfectly strong case that is made by Chukar and Muna and the 49, which is that in the end, if, as Corbyn says, Brexit is about preserving jobs, and that's his mantra, leaving membership of the single market, leaving membership of the customs union is going to do a lot of damage to that. And as an outsider, I don't understand how Corbyn refuses to align himself with that argument, because I think it's a good argument. It's an argument that distinguishes them from the Tories. I appreciate there's the argument about my immigration. It's a problem. But in the end, if it is about jobs, I think you can make that argument. And it's a great pity for the Labour Party that it's not going down that road. Well, last word, Aisha. I think the thing that's hard is at the Progress Conference last Saturday and Peter Kellner, who's a great pollster, very much in that Blairite wing of the part, Labour Party, stood up and said, here's what our position should be on Brexit. We've got to stop Brexit happening. And everyone started cheering madly. I put that question to Caroline Flint and she said, no, we can't do that as as." 
people who believe in democracy in the Labour Party, we can't do that. Can't stop Brexit, but you can do Brexit with a very strong pro-single market, pro-customs union position. I think for for Corbyn, we sort of know where his heart lies. I think actually conference is going to provide a focal point for for deciding this issue. And for the Tories as well. Yeah. And that's it for this week's episode. Thank you very much to all my guests for joining. We'll be back next week for another installment of FT Politics. Until then, thanks for listening. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.